Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning to help us to concentrate on the Word of God as it's being preached today. We praise you for who you are, for your holiness, your justice, your righteousness, your sovereignty, your love. Father, we ask this morning in a special way that you would uh, bless and take care of our two new deacons and their families this morning. Help them to be prepared and to be ready to serve and also to be ready to receive the blessings that come along with service. And uh, we pray for their families, their wives in particular. I want to pray for my wife this morning who lost her dad on Saturday. I want to pray also, Father, for everybody in our congregation. Everybody goes through things and some known only to you. And we would just ask for your comfort and provision whatever those things are this morning. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let's uh, have a congregation song to begin this morning. That song this morning is uh, dedicated to all the loved ones we've lost recently, and we've had several people that have gone home to be with the Lord. In fact, that was my father-in-law's favorite song growing up, so I figured I'd play that and honor him too. All right, a couple of announcements. Um, when the music starts, we would ask everybody to be seated. See, that, that's kind of the indication that the service has begun, really. And I know some people really want to listen and, and concentrate on the words of the song, even before service. So we would ask, if you, if you can at all, please make sure. And I know there's um, situations that arise, okay, but if you, if you can, um, I know we have a bathroom, just one bathroom, so I know that could be tricky. Um, although it brings back fond memories for me, because growing up, we had one bathroom and four kids and a mom and dad and showers to take every morning. I'm sure some of you can relate to that. So in any event, um, yeah, we're going to try to do that. Schedule notes, a couple of them this morning. Um, I know I had announced that we would not be having service on Sunday, August 27th, but we will. Um, there was actually... We were planning a birthday celebration for my dad-in-law. So, yeah, he would have been 90 at the end of the month. So, But that won't happen. However, um, we will not have Bible study this Thursday because it looks like they haven't finalized the plans yet for his, you know, for his service, but it's probably going to be Wednesday or Thursday. So um, we won't be having Bible study this Thursday. Okay, we will have service next Sunday, of course. All right. Let's begin. This morning, we have a very special service because we're going to install two deacons to serve our congregation. It's always a, a great event when, we, when, when that happens. Um, it's something for us all to participate in, to enjoy, to celebrate. Um, it also has the practical use of everybody knowing who the deacons are so that if you um, need something or if uh, something arises, you know, they're, they're kind of the... They're the people that are closest to the people, if I would put it that way. Their, their, their role is to serve us, okay? They're not a slave of the church, by the way. They're just providing service. They have some assigned duties. Um, and also, again, like all of us in the leadership team, um, we've got to be aware of particular needs and things that come up with people. So we now have two new gentlemen that can help us with that, too. All right, please, at this time, turn your Bibles to... Oh, and those are their names. I can't forget that. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be Lee Zimmerman and, and Josh Ward this morning. 
really um, pleased that they're going to be joining us. And with that, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Give you a moment to get there this morning. There's the, the first and second Timothy, as well as Titus and Philemon, are um, what are called pastoral epistles. What that means is that Paul wrote these epistles to men in leadership, and so it's it's it's, it's really describing the conduct of things in the local assembly in the congregation, including the appointment of men to different offices. In, in these, especially in First Timothy and also in Titus, there are specific instructions and qualifications for elder. In First Timothy, there are also qualifications given for deacon, and that's why we're turning to this passage this morning. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This morning, again, we have the privilege of witnessing our public recognition of these two gentlemen for the office of deacon, Lee Zimmerman and Josh Ward. In a little while, after, after this teaching this morning, we will formally install them as deacons for our congregation. They will join the leadership team with our elders. Now, our elders are Mark Pomeroy, Jack Bovenet, and me. Okay, so that's the whole team now. So you know everybody on the team. There's five, which is a basketball team, I suppose. We could think of it that way. But um, my basketball days are over. I know Lee's still playing, but <laughs> my days are over. All right, deacons. Now, they're similar to elders in one respect, that they serve as leaders also for the congregation. But, of course, in any leadership team, there are different roles. And so deacons have a different role from elders. Okay? Elders are those who make important major decisions. They have to be able to teach themselves. And they, in general, supervise activities in the congregation. One of those duties of the elders is to appoint deacons. Because deacons are installed to lead areas of service in the congregation. Okay, so there's, there's elders and there's deacons. They're similar because they're, they're, they're in leadership positions. They're different as well, okay, because the elders are the ones that serve as to make major decisions, supervise the activities. Deacons step in and are given um, responsibility for particular areas of service. In fact, the word deacon itself comes from a Greek word that means to render service. That's the primary focus of a deacon, is to render service as it's needed. The Bible, as we've already read this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is very exact in its description 
not of the duties of the office of deacon, but rather the necessary qualifications. You know, um, as we go through, you'll notice that there's really, what we read this morning, there's really nothing about the particular duties. Okay, so the focus in terms of preparing for a new deacon is to understand the necessary qualifications. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So again, to repeat, this passage does not describe the duties of the deacon. One of the reasons for that is because it's a, service is a general category, and it's up to the specifics in a congregation to determine how to, how to appoint and assign duties to the deacons. Okay? There are some things, like, for example, the, 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 the upkeep of the building, for example, uh, the, the food that we have before service. Um, and so forth. Maybe something that, that I need as a pastor in the morning, like my water that's here always faithfully. So there are some things that are regular, and we assign people, you know, um, Joshua is in the back um, learning and assisting in the technology, for example. Um, Lee's very faithful. Um, that's one of the things we're going to see this morning as a qualification of a deacon is that they be faithful to the preaching of the Word of God. It's so important for anybody in a leadership position. Okay. So again, this passage does not describe the duties of the deacon. Rather, it describes, notice this now, character and also observable behavior. Notice the word observable behavior. You see, as a practical matter, okay, the, the decision to, to, to appoint a man to the, to the service, to the role, to the office of deacon is based on these two things. These are things that are, um, are the criteria used by elders in, in deciding which man is, is eligible, not eligible, but has the necessary qualifications. And again, they include two things, character and observable behavior. These are related because character are qualities in the inside of a man. The observable behavior is how those characteristics play out. And what, and what leaders and congregation members can actually experience about a man. Right? We, can't, we can't zoom into a man's heart. So instead, we have observable behavior. That's really important. It's going to be important when we look at the certain qualities. So we need to understand that. This is practical. This is for the purpose of choosing good leaders. And we're going to see that these, unfortunately, in certain cases, these qualities have been misrepresented by the church to mean, for example, conducting a witch hunt on all the past of people, which has really very little to do with the qualifications. Rather, it's observable behavior now so that we're appointing people that we know, based on what we're observing, have the necessary qualifications to serve in the manner that they do. As a matter of fact, if you look at the qualities, both of the elders, by the way, which is earlier in chapter 3, First seven verses of chapter 3 list the elders' qualifications and also the deacons. They're very practical. As a matter of fact, these qualities aren't that much different from perhaps what should be used for any man in any occupation as in terms of leadership are concerned. Now, in addition to that, so for example, being a man of dignity, well, that's important not only for leadership in the church, but hopefully for leadership in other areas in education, in government, and so forth. There are, of course, also some qualities that are unique to these, these positions, okay? And they're spiritual in nature because that's what's unique about the, the church, 
related to the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God and, and growing up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are things that are critical for, the, for, the, for a leader in a congregation, in a church, not typically used to evaluate people in the secular world, although it would be nice if they did. But, uh, but the, the duties that they have are different. In any event, it describes character and observable behavior that would qualify or disqualify a man for this office. We have in this passage both positive things and negative things, qualities we're looking for and things we, we don't want to have to see, if I could put it that way. Virtues and vices, there's both. So we're looking for, we're looking for men who have the virtues and don't have the vices, kind of to put it simply. All right, so um, I want to know, I want to note something else about our passage, and that is, whoops, that uh, verse 11 talks about women. It talks about, this is qualifications also, but they're qualifications for women to serve. And they're not deacons' wives, okay? A lot of us were taught before that this is the deacons' wives, okay? By the way, when we were studying First Timothy, um, we, did a, we did an assessment of that possibility and realized that it could not be talking about wives of deacons, but rather women, while not in positions of leadership, who, who are taking responsibility for, for this kind of service in the congregation. So, so, so there are qualities that are similar for a woman who is going to be providing duties, not, but not leadership duties. So there are some things that are unique to deacons and elders because they're needed for leadership. So this is any woman who is recognized as providing a service on a regular basis. For example, teaching the kids in Sunday school would be an example of that. Okay. So this is a separate category. It's women who serve the congregation who are not in leadership roles. But this morning, we will be examining the qualifications for the office of deacon, and that's for men only. Okay. So now let's begin and consider these qualifications together. There are actually nine of them, and we'll begin now again in verse 8. Deacons likewise, now that word likewise is just pointing to the fact that Paul's already given the qualities and the qualifications of an elder, and there are a lot of similarities, okay? Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain. There are four qualities in verse 8. One, as it were, is a positive. Something you're looking for, virtue in a man. A man of dignity. Three are negative. Three things that would disqualify a man from serving in the role of, of deacon, or elder for that matter. Not double-tongued, we'll see what that means, or addicted to much wine. Okay, Notice it doesn't say never drinks a drop of liquor, right? It says what? Not addicted to much wine. And fond of sordid gain. Not, not being in business, not having a good income, but fond, desirous of, lusting after, not just even gain, but sordid gain. And we're going to look what that means as well. Okay, let's begin with the man of dignity. Man of dignity, quite simply, is a man who's worthy of respect. Because a leadership, a leader in the congregation, if that person does not have the respect of the congregation, 
then, then, then he won't be able to conduct his duties properly. All right, so that's important as a crack, practical matter. Because you might say, well, I thought that we were never supposed to examine um, one another and that we're supposed to just leave that up to the Lord. And that, that principle, by and large, is true when it comes to generally people, members of the congregation. It's not true when it comes to leadership. I pointed this out before. When a man is, is uh, eligible and being considered for, a, for an elder position or a deacon position, it's absolutely critical that they are evaluated. Okay? You have the right, as a member of the congregation, to evaluate any communicator of the word to make sure that they're teaching according to the Bible. Okay, so there's lots of, the higher you go in leadership, the more scrutiny you will get, and that's appropriate. Okay, man of dignity is a man who is worthy of respect. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's kind of, there's three elements to that. The first one, honorable, has a sense of honor, sense of duty, also noble in character. Okay, these, these qualities, of course, in the general public today are becoming more and more rare. That, of course, turn, that can filter into the church. And so there is, it is important to evaluate a man for his nobility and his character. His character. Now, the advantage we have um, as those who are Christians who study the Bible is we understand what character is really all about. Or we should. Right? It's basically looking at the qualities that are being developed in a man, in this case, as he continues to learn the word of God and put it into practice. For example, the fruit of the spirit gives one a nobility of character. The principles of how to live the Christian life, the commands that we get, like to be forgiving of others, like to put somebody else's needs above your own. See, these are qualities that are noble in character. And a man who would attain to the office of deacon should be that kind of person. And then finally, serious about duties. You know, you know the expression, if somebody is careless in a little thing, they're going to be careless in a big thing. That's part of the testing, as it were, that's going on. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But you really have to be serious about your duties. You can't take them haphazardly. You can't say, well, you know, if I don't do it today, it's no big deal. Well, when you're in a leadership position, it's a big deal. So you have to be serious. When it's time to do your job, as it were, as a leader, you're concentrated, you're focused, you're serious about it. Not always. You know, we don't want somebody who's somber and, you know, we want somebody who has a personality, if possible. The sense of humor is an advantage in leadership. But when it comes time to get the job done, that's when a man should be serious about his duties. All right, the next, the next, next quality, again, is a negative one, what, we're, what we don't want to have in a man, and that is double-tongued, double-tongued. The Greek word means speaking in two directions, okay, speaking in two directions, okay, if you can, that's, it's a very descriptive thing, but we need to break that down a little more. So speaking in two, two directions also means that this man is saying one thing and meaning another. Saying one thing and living the opposite. Saying one thing to some group of people and another thing to another group of people. Do you understand? Talking in opposite directions. Politicians are really good at this by and large. Okay, But we're not, we're not electing politicians here. 
right? We're looking for men of integrity, okay? So people who say one thing and mean another. It refers also to a tendency to, be, to deceive others with one's words, okay? In order to make people believe something that is not true. Again, deceiving with one's words. Not being straightforward, but either saying something in a vague manner or out and out lying in order to get an advantage over people or, or perhaps to take attention away from your own failures and so forth, to believe something that is not true. So quite simply then, no one can be an effective leader if he's a liar. Now I'm not talking about never, never lies. We know the Bible says we're all liars. But it has, it has as a regular part of observable behavior, they're liars. That can't be for a person who's... In, you, that's very obvious, I would hope, that, that we have to rely on a man's word. Okay? And if they're lying, if they say, yeah, I'll be there, and then they're not, well, you know, I mean, that happens. But I'm just saying, if, you, if somebody's regularly doing that, if somebody is regularly saying things about people in the congregation that simply aren't true, well, that disqualifies a man from being a deacon, or any leader for that matter, a hypocrite. Okay? Again, a man who's a hypocrite. Now, we're all hypocrites, but we're talking about leadership now. So, in other words, just see a small example. Okay. So, this morning I mentioned that um, I would like people to be seated and concentrating when the, song start, when the music starts to introduce the class. Well, if every week I'm in the back talking my head off with Mark at five minutes of, well, that's hypocritical. See, that's, that's what I'm talking now. Don't, don't be legalistic with me and say, aha, we caught you, okay? But as a principle, as a manner of living, as a regular practice, okay, hypocrisy doesn't work in leadership. Phoniness doesn't work either. You know, a lot of people want to put on airs or want to think, think better of themselves and want you to think better of them. Okay, that's not going to work in leadership either. There's a, there's a sense of honesty and humility that we have to have in our leaders in the church. Okay, the next quality in verse 8. Addicted, not addicted to much wine. Not addicted to much wine. This is somebody who regularly drinks to excess. Okay? It's not somebody who has a glass or two of wine or beer on the weekends. This is somebody basically... Who, who has too much to drink on a regular basis, okay? To the point where that person has become addicted. By the way, here it's talking about wine. It's also talking about any other kind of substance, okay, that would cause you to be addicted to it. It's not, by the way, even though this is looking at wine and substances that you take in your body, that principle holds, and we're going to see this across other things too. A man who's in a position of leadership in the church should be addicted to one thing, and that is his responsibilities. Okay, Anything else is going to detract from that. Some things are going to also affect and destroy somebody's character, could destroy their health, and so forth. So that kind of a person, we have compassion, we do everything we can, but we're not going to appoint that person to a place of leadership, at least not now. Okay, But again, there's a grace principle here, which means that if in the future a person has dealt with that, we're not also going to go back and say, you know, in 2014, we know that, you know, you had a problem, so you're never going to be considered again. That's legalistic, okay? That's all too common 
when it comes not only to positions of leadership, but to members of the congregation. And by the way, no man is going to be 100% in all of these qualities this morning. If that were the standard, I dare say that no church in America would ever even have a deacon. Okay? So it's not 100%. It's not perfection. We're all fallible. We're all human. But, but we can't, if there's one glaring area where it's obvious to everybody, we just can't have that. Because, again, there's that respect factor that would be lacking. Okay. So, again, um, it, mean, it doesn't mean, I want to emphasize this, that deacons are forbidden to have any alcohol. Okay, that's the Baptist approach. Or it, used to, it used to be. I don't know what's going on in the Baptist church today. But in the old days, the Baptist church had that rule. There are some denominations today that have that rule. I know of one denomination that has a school, and they would police their teachers. So that when teachers were out to dinner, they had to like not have a glass of wine with dinner. Or else, oops, it gets all over. Did you know that Mrs. So-and-so had a drink last Saturday? Well, that's nonsense. That's not what this is talking about. You know, we know that for a fact because in, like I said, in 2 Timothy, Paul writes to him, listen, have a little wine for your stomach. It's good for you. Okay, Jesus turned water into wine, folks. It's not, it's not the taking in. It's not the enjoyment of alcohol. It's what? Drinking to excess so that one becomes addicted over time. You can't serve in leadership if you're under the influence of alcohol in your life. I hope that's pretty obvious to people, right? Um, because, again, drunkenness, unfortunately, destroys self-discipline over time. Other addictions do, too, Okay. Um, an addiction to, to your job can cause that. An addiction to, we're going to see this in a minute, money can do that to you. All right? and it, so it's not simply wine, but it is something that is important enough to point out that Paul includes it in, these, in this list of nine qualities or, or, or qualifications. Again, a leader cannot be a slave to alcohol, can't be a slave to anything except his responsibility. That requires Self-discipline and concentration. It, a regular lifestyle of getting drunk destroys self-discipline and the ability to concentrate. And again, if, it, if a man is, is exhibiting that in his life and he's not taking on a position of leadership, that's one thing. But it's a totally different matter. I want to keep emphasizing that. Okay? In terms of the scrutiny that we put people under. Okay, but it is true, by the way, that said, that these qualities that today we're examining, the, the office of deacon using them, they're actually qualities that are important for every believer to have. You know, no believer should be fond of sordid gain, right? Paul, Paul later on is going to say the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So everybody's in that position of, of trying to work on and develop these qualities, However, if those qualities aren't it, to the point where it's a regular practice, then those men are not eligible to be deacons yet. Okay. All right. So let's talk about fond of sordid gain. That's the next expression that we have here. Of course, this is another form of slavery. It's, it's why Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve the congregation and be a slave of money, lusting after money, 
desiring it, even if you have to do something immoral or even illegal, okay? You can't be a slave to money like you can't be a slave to alcohol. All right, notice the expression, though, sordid gain. I want to point that out. It doesn't say fond, well, it does say fond, and that's a problem because he's talking about a lust and a desire, inordinate desire for something. But secondly, there's that word sordid, and it's important to see that. Fond of sordid gain is another form of slavery. And again, let me emphasize, it's what Jesus meant when he said that you cannot serve God and serve money. Okay. Or as, as, uh, as it's been said, money is a good servant and a terrible master. But sordid gain is a step beyond even the inordinate desire for wealth. It also means ill-gotten gain, secured by illegal or immoral acts. That's sordid, okay? It's, it's polluted, it's tainted, it's wrong. And there are, of course, too many examples of that in the world. And, you know, we have a limited ability to influence the world, but we do have the ability to choose or not choose, man, on this quality and this characteristic. It also refers to taking for personal use money that has been entrusted to you for another purpose. Right? The fancy word for that is embezzlement. Okay? And, of course, we know that in the world. I mean, I mean, for example, and again, this is what I mean by the fact that these leadership qualities ought to be used in the world as well as in the church. You know, I mean, if you have a financial advisor that you've entrusted your retirement to, and that person instead takes money out of your account and uses it for himself, you know, well, that's sordid gain, and we don't want that in the world either, secured by illegal or immoral acts. By the way, in context... The specific issue here is the embezzlement of church finances. And that goes on, too, all too often. Unfortunately, both in the first century and today, there are men who look to make Christian leadership into a means of financial gain. Here again, however, this is not saying that, that, that people who are serving in the capacity of elder teaching cannot receive any money for that. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite. You know, Paul would write elsewhere that a man who is preaching the gospel ought to earn his living from the gospel. But then he goes on to say, I haven't made use of that. Okay, so this is not saying that you can't pay the elders or the pastors or the people who are, you know, perhaps working full time. We don't have that. But if you're in a ministry where there's somebody working full time on publications, they deserve to be compensated. That's not what this is talking about. Again, it's sordid gain, embezzlement. Money that you're given in trust that you then take for yourself. All right. The next expression, now we start in verse 9. And this is one that is unique qualification for men in the church. Not something that is typically used to evaluate leaders in the secular world. And that expression is, of course, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. We'll get to the clear conscience in a minute, but for now I want to focus a little bit on the expression, the mystery of the faith. Now, mystery is formerly hidden knowledge that has now been revealed. The, the New Testament epistles are full of this. Right, right now in the Gospel of John, we're in chapter 14, and, and, and Jesus is preparing his disciples for this next age where there will be all sorts of things revealed that have been hidden before until that time, okay? 
And, and Paul talks about these in several places. One of them is the fact that Christ is in each and every believer. Okay, that was a mystery. It was never known until after Jesus ascended to the Father and the Spirit came down. There are, cer- there are certain things in the Word of God that now are revealed. And oh, by the way, if you're in a position of leadership, you should know about those things. Not only know about those things, but in a, in a sense, be an expert on those things. Have them apply to your own life. Have the ability to teach others and lead others so that they too understand the richness of what it means to be a Christian. The mystery of the faith. Now, the faith here doesn't mean somebody who, who's a strong believer. It means, it means the content of what is believed. Okay? And what is that? The mystery teachings in particular here. But in general, everything about, about what it means to be a Christian. To, to know the things that we should know about what it means to be a Christian. The things that have been revealed. Who we are, that we're new creations, for example. Okay? What has believed, what is believed, and in particular, truths that have been, re- have been revealed for the first time to the church. First of all, by the way, it means the mystery of the gospel. Paul will talk about that in the book of Ephesians. What is, the, what is the mystery of the gospel? Well, it's the knowledge of how God was going to bring about reconciling the world to himself. And the mystery is, is that he would send his own son and his own son would die. And that would be the means by which the father would reconcile the world to himself. Okay? That wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. There were certain hints about who the Messiah would be. There was a general understanding that he, for example, that he would be the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53 talks about the fact that he would die for our sins. But the New Testament epistles go beyond all of that to explain everything about what God had in mind. For example, the fact that we've all, as believers in Christ, we were foreknown by the Father before the foundation of the world. That wasn't known in the Old Testament, for example. That we've been elected as believers now to certain Blessings and privileges and callings, for that matter. These are all things that are revealed now under the general title of mysteries. And again, the first one of first importance is the mystery of the gospel. Now, here's a deep spiritual principle. You can't hold to the mystery of the faith if you haven't learned what that's all about. Right? You can't hold to something unless you know about it, all right? And holding to it means that you've learned it, you've believed it, you've put it into practice, and on the evil day, when you're under pressure, you rely on that. You hold on to the mystery of the faith tightly. So again, if you don't know what it's all about, if you don't know what the teachings are in the New Testament that were things formerly hidden that have now been revealed, you can't hold on to them. You can't meet this qualification to be a deacon. So what does that mean in practice? Quite simply, it means that deacons need to be present when the word of God is being taught. So in other words, and this is true for a number of reasons, right? You can't have a situation where everybody's gathering together to hear the word of God on Sunday and they look around and the deacons are missing. Now, what message does that send? It sends, well, guess preaching of the word of God isn't all that important if the leaders in the church aren't even showing up for it. So that's what it means in practice. Be here when the word of God is being taught. And I have to say this morning, I have to, I have to 
compliment the men this morning because they are those kind of men. All right, we have a very low attendance on Thursday evenings, but this gentleman is there just about every Thursday unless he's out of town. Josh isn't only here on Sunday, but he's already taking an active role. Okay? He, in fact, may have a calling down the road that will involve the Word of God. We'll have to discern that over time. Okay. Now, the next expression is another one that is misunderstood often, and that is that expression, clear conscience. What's a clear conscience? Well, first of all, I want to step back just for a minute, and I want to think about what's a conscience. Well, a conscience is basically knowing right from wrong, right, and doing your best to do what's right. That's a conscience. Here's the problem, though. If you have a conscience that doesn't know what's right and wrong, then you certainly can't have a pure conscience. Does that make sense? You can't because you don't even... In other words, the standards, the the computer program that you're using to evaluate your life is faulty. It's wrong, okay? That's the key issue because nobody's... Again, nobody's faultless. Everybody is going to fall short of, of, of what the Word of God has to say. But the conscience should be one that is trained and formed and, and transformed by the word of God. And that's the, that is the key issue. Therefore, a clear conscience is one that has been cleansed from worldly norms and standards. We all enter into our Christian life with a conscience that has basically been built by worldly norms and standards. That has to be changed. See, 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 the world can get away with making certain judgments about what's good and bad that have nothing to do with what the Bible says. We see that all the time. You know, you hear the expression honor among thieves. That's a good illustration of that. They're, they're their own little community. They have their own standards. You know, the mafia is another example. Coming from Rhode Island, where we had the, we had the head of the mafia in New England for a while. I can tell you that they have their own standards. You know, you can kill, lie, sell drugs, but you can't turn on any member of, of the Casa Nostra, right? That's a Norman standard. Is it a good one? Absolutely not. Is it biblical? No. So we can pick on the mafia, but all of us have brought these with us when we first became believers in Christ. It's why what Paul says in chapter 12 of the book of Romans, do not be conformed to this world but be ye transformed by the renewing of the mind. A renewing means that something changes, that something new comes on the scene. And when it comes to your conscience, there's something new that comes on the scene is the word of God. And, but the way that you develop a clear conscience is, yes, first, having the word of God change how you think. But the other element, remember, a conscience not only decides what's right and wrong, but also Live, tries to live up to the person with a conscience doesn't, doesn't just know stealing is wrong, but also tries to live that way. A person with a conscience knows that if you hit somebody in the parking lot, you don't just drive off. You know, you know that, but how do you live? Okay, same thing here. The part of the development of a clear conscience is once that once you have the word of God changing how you think, then you live. You've changed how you live. That requires a cleaning agent. And that cleaning agent is two things. It's the word of God and it's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what develops a clear conscience for the Christian. God bless you. Again, it's the power of the word of God 
and the power of the Holy Spirit working together. Remember, the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, is our teacher, but he's also the one that's an encourager. And that means that once we've learned something, the Holy Spirit also prods us, pushes us at times to live according to what we believe. Now, this does not mean, obviously, that a person never commits a sin. See, in the world, a pure conscience, they think it is somebody who never makes a mistake. But that's not true. See, the thing about the word of God is that we know that God is gracious. We know the truth about how evil we are in our flesh too, by the way. And once we get a better understanding of that, we are convinced that there's no way we'll ever be sinless in this life. However, the, the conscience is, can still be developed so that you, your, your standards change. Okay, so a clear conscience doesn't mean a person doesn't commit a sin. doesn't even mean a person does penance when he does sin. Okay, there are, cer- there are certain um, worldly ideas that somehow when somebody does something wrong, you know, they have, to, they have to make penance for it. They have to make up for it and all of that. But I dare say as a Christian, if that were true of us, we would spend all our time making up for things we've done wrong. Why? Because we know on a much deeper level all of, the, all of all the evil that is involved with being a human being. So, for example, somebody in the world might say, if I steal $1,000, i got to give it back. And, of course, that's a true principle. But then a Christian comes along, and, and you learn that even if you have an inordinate desire for money, that's wrong. So where do you go to do penance for that? You can't go anywhere other than to the cross and to realize that Jesus has already dealt with that sin. Okay. So basically, again, let me, let me repeat. A clear conscience simply means that your values and priorities now conform to God's thinking. That's what it means. Your values and priorities conform to God's thinking. Verse 10. These men must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now, so here we have a test, and then here we have a result, a desired result. We're going to start with the desired result, because that will put the testing in context. What does it mean to be beyond reproach? Beyond reproach. Well, like everything else, it has, it's got, in terms of these qualities, it has to do with a man's conduct, man's conduct. And in particular, to be beyond reproach means to be free of any valid charge of impropriety. Now, those are some big words, and I apologize for that. But what does it basically mean? It means if you've got a, a, a behavior that you, are, that you are regularly involved in that would make you vulnerable to anybody accu- accusing you validly of an improper way of living, by the way, when I say anybody, I don't just mean the congregation either. I mean the world. Because when it comes to elders, you know, Paul said to Timothy, they should have a good reputation outside the church. You see? Why is that? I'll tell you why. The church has adversaries that would like nothing better to destroy her reputation and hinder her mission. And a man that has improprieties that are Obvious in terms of, again, outward behavior kind of makes everybody vulnerable if they're in a leadership position and could bring disfavor on the church. And so that's why this is so important. Okay, how about the testing? This man must first also be tested. 
tested. Well, the Greek word, by the way, means to be tested through trial and pressure. The word originally in the Greek had to do with uh, refinement of gold or the testing of whether it's 100% gold. And the only way to have done that, at least in the ancient world, was to um, put it under high pressure and under a lot of heat. And that's, the, that's what's been brought, that concept is brought over to testing a man. It has to be through trial and through pressure. And there's no other way to do that. In other words, the man who has first be tested is somebody who has had some pressure applied to his life and has come through. And in particular, cannot let that pressure, that difficulty, distract him from continuing to, to grow in the word of God in particular. It means then, so there's a test, and then it means that, that you pass the test. In other words, something has now been seen as genuine, worthy, on the basis of the testing that that man has gone through. So quite simply, it means to have been tested and found approved. Or, or, or we may say the real deal, right? We use that expression. He's the real deal. He practices what he preaches, okay? Tried and true. That's what this is talking about. Verse 12, if I've already mentioned this, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their household. I hope you notice that we've skipped verse 11, and I've explained why. Okay, today we are looking at the qualifications for a deacon. So we are now on the expression, the husband of one wife. Among all the qualities, characteristics, um, qualifications, this one is been the most abused by legalistic people. Okay? It's been used, for example, to exclude the unmarried, to exclude the divorce, to exclude the divorced and remarried. That is not accurate, just so you're clear on that. Okay? The interpretation that has the most favor is also the simplest. The phrase, by the way, in the Greek, and it's probable that uh, Paul invented this thing, means a whoops, a one-woman man, literally. Husband of only one wife means a one-woman man. Okay. What is it, why is that important? Because, you see, the fact of the matter is, is that a man should be devoted exclusively to his current wife. Let me say that again. A man ought to be devoted exclusively to his current wife. Now, why is that? Well, for several reasons. First of all, if he's not, once again, he could bring shame and embarrassment to the church. And as a leader, that just can't be accepted. Okay? In addition to that, remember that, that he is supposed to be um, an example in carrying the torch of Christian teaching, of mystery teaching. And one of those mysteries, by the way, is Christian marriage, you know, how the, that the standards of Christian marriage are higher than anything that was what was required for the Jews in the Old Testament. You know, that the, that the man ought to be sacrificial in his love for the woman. Okay, certainly if he's fooling around on her, he's not being sacrificial and focused on his love. I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? Right? I mean, think about the woman's point of view on that. Okay? And it also, of course, does mean that the woman is in submitting to the husband and his authority. Okay. Being exclusively devoted to one's current wife. I mentioned current because this is not a witch hunt. This is not an archaeological dig into a man's life, okay? It's current. What's, what's observable? That's the theme, right? Okay, so, and I will point out, 
Okay, some, some examples of that. The New Testament condemns certain sexual activities. Okay, in particular, extramarital, okay, adultery, homosexual acts, and, by the way, consorting with prostitutes. Okay, I'll show that in. So any man who's involved with those things has disqualified himself for this office. Not forever, but for the period of time that that's his observable behavior. He just can't be a leader. He'd be an embarrassment to the church and would undermine the mission. All right. And good managers of their children and their own households. Good managers of their children and their own households. Again, this one's fairly obvious. If a man can't manage his own household, how can he possibly manage the affairs of the church? Can't. So, so the point is, by the way, that family life is the best proving ground for leadership in the church. Family life. By the way, it's an important institution for the church in particular. How are we going to evangelize the next generation of people if those children aren't being brought up in a family that has the right Christian principles? Namely, that the father is the leader and the woman is the helper. And by the way, that means that the father has the responsibility of bringing up the children in the word of God, by the way. So that's the proving ground for leadership in the church. Okay, finally, verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let me put it another way. Serving well produces its own rewards. In other words, by, by serving well, you have rewarded yourself as well as the congregation. Okay, you'll have, there are blessings in your life that come about automatically when you're serving well. Okay? High standing and confidence in the faith. His high standing comes by a life lived according to the principles of the word of God. Developing one's dignity, managing one's reputation. High standing. Confidence in the faith comes from simply continuing to learn the word of God and submitting it, putting it into practice. These are necessities if a man would serve well as a deacon. Lee, Josh, you have demonstrated these qualities. As a matter of fact, you did so without knowing that you'd even be a candidate for the office of deacon. You've passed the test. Congratulations. And as you assume the responsibilities of the office of deacon, we will all be praying for you and your family, especially your wives, especially for Joyce and Nicole. All righty. I would at this time invite the leadership team up. That means the elders and the deacons. Our installation consists very simply of praying over these men. That's the public statement. Okay, so we're going to do that at this time. So Mark, Jack, Josh, we need, we need you and we need Lee. Otherwise, we can't do this. <laughs> you guys in the front. Close to the pulpit so we can be behind you. There you go. All right. Gentlemen, if you would place hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the privilege of being able to witness this public expression of our confidence in these men. We thank you for the preparation that they have made. We thank you for you overseeing and supervising their preparation. We thank you, Father, that they have had the ability to be tested and proved. And we also, Father, thank you that we know that these men are well positioned to be able to do their duties well. And in particular now, Father, we would ask for your, for your protection, your guidance, your strengthening of these men as they, in fact, do that, as they set out to be those men who would lead and serve the rest of our congregation. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lighthouse Bible Church, I now present to you our two new deacons, Lee and Joy. And Josh. <laughs> Congratulations. We do have a couple of gifts from the congregation to, to uh, mark this great event in your lives. Yep. The first one is a certificate, okay, that you can put on your wall or whatever you want to do, all right, that just, it, just, it uh, recognizes that you've been publicly installed as a deacon. Okay, yeah, put those up. We also would like to give you a gift, which is an engraved Bible. Thank you. Yep. Lee is saying, why would I need this? I only I use my phone. <laughs> All right. Let's make sure you have the right names. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Always check. All right. Again, congratulations, gentlemen. Thank you for your willingness to serve. We look forward to seeing you in action. Okay, at this time, let's prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Today we've talked a lot about serving. We've talked about the fact that the basic calling of a deacon is to serve the congregation. And by the way, we have the perfect example of that in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, one time he said, I have not come to be served, but to serve. And his greatest service was performed at the cross when he took care of all of our sins, that the innocent one was made guilty on behalf of the guilty in order that we might become the righteousness of God. It's the greatest act of service in the history of the world. And so today, let's just keep that in mind. Let's keep things in perspective. Let's understand that all of us are faulty, fallible. All of us need to have the grace of God in our lives. None more so, by the way, than leadership. Because, you know, just like our Lord Jesus Christ, 
um, had went through all kinds of terrible suffering on the way to the cross, doing his duty, on providing that amazing, perfect act of service, so too of those men who are in positions of leadership. And they'll fail. I fail. We all fail. Okay, and so, so the idea that we all need to understand the, the amount of forgiveness, the amount of grace that God has given us so that we have the right perspective on things, that ultimately it's all in God's hands. Just like our salvation is completely the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, ultimately our success and our calling is really dependent on the power of the word of God that he's given us and the Holy Spirit that is in our hearts. Let's never forget that. With that, let's now celebrate the Lord's Supper together. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back for us. Heavenly Father, again this morning, we want to express our gratitude that when we were your enemies, you gave us your perfect son to die on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you raised him from the dead. And we thank you that this, of the simplicity of the mystery of the gospel, it's not by keeping the works of the law. It's simply by hearing the message of the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, your son, and simply believing it. And at that moment, whoever has done that, you give eternal life and you declare righteous in your eyes. So, Father, we thank you for that amazing gift. We thank you also for the gift of these two new men, Lee and Josh, as they embark on their calling to serve the congregation. We ask that all of us would understand and, and, and put everything in the perspective of the death of your son on the cross for all of our sins. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, just a couple of reminders. One, really, that we're not going to be having Bible study this Thursday. We won't be. but We'll be, we'll be continuing with Sunday next week and so forth. And again, since this is a day where we're focused on the mystery of the gospel, I do want to one more time continue to have you hear that, Okay need to hear it regularly because of all the distortion and lies that we face, right? It's the simplicity of God so loving the world that he gave us his one and only son, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. And Jesus Christ, in obedience to his father and to vindicate his father's character, went to the cross, went there for the father first and then for us, died for the sins of the world. If you're not a believer in Christ, you need to understand that God gave his only son for you, and that son, Jesus Christ, died for your sins. That means that they're, they're all, they've all been dealt with. God judged every sin in the body of his son on the cross. 
And he raised him from the dead. So that whoever simply now believes that Jesus Christ is God, did die for you our sins, was raised from the dead, whoever believes that will never perish, but has eternal life. That is the miraculous message of the gospel. And I hope you can understand how it's good news. It's good news. The Holy Spirit, if you're an unbeliever, if there's an unbeliever in your life, it's his work to prepare them to be open to hearing the message. It is our privilege to to actually speak the message of truth. And it is our prayer that whoever hears that message of truth would understand it and decide to believe in it. That's the gospel. All right, one more time, let's close. Father, thank you once again for all the um, things that have happened this morning. We thank you for allowing us to participate in this public recognition of our two new deacons. We thank you, Father, for your word. We also thank you for, for the uh, opportunity today to bring into remembrance the death of your son. And, we, and I, we ask for all of us today, not just the new deacons, that we would put into practice the things that we've learned in your word and continue to, to be dedicated and devoted to hearing the preaching of the word of God and to an active prayer life. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. Enjoy the day. Feel free to congratulate Lee and Josh. That's okay. <laughs>